Merry-Go-Round Storytelling presents Test Valley Tales with Amanda Kane-Smith. Hello, I'm Amanda. Welcome to the Test Valley Tales podcast. This podcast features the stories from my illustrated book called Test Valley Tales. Each week, I'll be telling a traditional story based in a real location in the beautiful borough of Test Valley, which, if you're not from round here, is in Hampshire, in England, in the UK. All the stories are different, but they are all magical in one way or another. So whether you're curious about strange-looking dragons or magical wish-giving fish, enchanted trees or even spooky ghost legends, I'm sure there'll be a tale here for everyone. And if you're listening locally, I hope you may want to go out and explore the place the story is set and maybe see if you can find some of the things I refer to there. I can't promise you'll meet any of the magical creatures, but if you do come across any, please say hello from me. Well, I think it's time to get on with this week's tale. So, make yourselves comfortable, and I will set the scene. This tale is a historical legend, and it's called The Dead Man's Plaque of Harewood Forest. Along the middle way, which lies between Picket 20 and Long Parish, there is a small wooden stile hidden in the hedge. Climb over this stile and walk across the sloping field. At the top, you will find a path. That will take you into Dead Man's Plaque Copse. Here, as legend has it, the Saxon King Edgar killed his friend Ethelwald while hunting for deer, all for the love of the beautiful Elfrida. You'll know you've found the spot because a grand monument has been built there. The first time I went to look for it, I was surprised by its sudden appearance between the trees, with its stone cross stretching towards the treetops like something out of a gothic tale. On the plinth, if you look closely, you may be able to make out the inscription. It tells the story of this old piece of English history, which could have been forgotten over time were it not for this site. But is the legend true? All the people are real, and Elfrida even founded the abbey at Whirlwell, where she spent the last years of her life. As I stand by this monument, I wonder about the role Elfrida has in this legend. She is generally thought of as being wicked and ambitious. However, if you look a little deeper, there are so many different versions of the things that happened in her life that it is difficult to know what to believe. It's a bit of a mystery, really. And I wonder, what would Elfrida make of it all? Mm -hmm. 
Elfrida picked up the bronze mirror and looked at her reflection. She knew it would be frowned upon for someone in her position to own something so frivolous, but she was used to disapproval. Besides, it had been a gift from her father when she was very young, and although the polished surface was not as smooth and shiny as it once was, she still liked to gaze into it. The woman staring back was old now, but she didn't mind. She liked her wrinkles. They showed she'd lived a full and interesting life. There were things she regretted and wished she had done differently, but she doubted it would have made much difference. She thought about that fateful day when her stepson Edmund had visited her at Corfe Castle and how it was rumoured that she'd handed him a drink and then killed him with a knife. It wasn't true, but people believed what they wanted to believe about her and she was resigned to that. Elfrida looked at her eyes and how cloudy and watery they had become, but thought they still had a tiny spark of that brightness they'd once had. She smiled and put the mirror down. Outside, she could hear a horse's hooves cantering into the courtyard. She went to look and saw a monk dismounting from the horse. There was probably some abbey business she would need to attend to, but it could wait. Someone would come and get her if she was needed. It had been many years since she had ridden a horse. She used to love riding, although she never felt as free doing it as when she was able to gallop across the moor at her father's home in Devon. But that had all changed the day Ethelwald came to visit. As she looked out of the window, she could see it had started to rain. Everyone was running to take cover and a storm was brewing. She felt thankful to be in the warm, with the fire crackling in the fireplace. She walked over to it and pulled up a chair and, as she looked into the flames, her mind drifted back to the day that Ethelwald had arrived, when she had been young and was thought to be the most beautiful woman in England. She remembered she had just returned from a wonderful ride on the moor when he had been announced. She was used to receiving visitors from the King's Court, but this time there seemed to be so much fuss and ceremony she knew he must be important. He is one of the King's closest friends, her father had said, before telling her to change into her finest clothes to meet him in. And make sure you are on your best behaviour, he'd said, knowing how outspoken she could be. At first... Ethelwold was reserved, and although he was courteous, the perfect gentleman in fact, Elfrida's father thought a game of chess would break the ice, as well as showing how skilfully his daughter could play. And so, after lunch, that is exactly what they had done. As she sat opposite him, deciding what her next move should be, she remembered feeling Ethelwold looking at her intently. She looked up and smiled, but when she saw his eyes, she could see his mind was elsewhere, distracted by thoughts. Elfrida was not sure what to make of him. 
Then, as soon as the game had finished, Ethelwald's behaviour changed dramatically. It was as if he had been in a dream before and was now wide awake, full of self-confidence and talk, wanting to impress her. She remembered how tedious it had been pretending to be enthralled by his stories, most of which she'd known already and thought she could tell much better. But she loved her father and respected him, so she made sure to stay on her best behaviour. That night, Ethelwald had asked her father if he could send a message to the king. He said it was a matter of some urgency, and Elfrida's father was happy to help. A messenger was dispatched straight away. Ethelwald remained as their guest, spending as much time as he was allowed with Elfrida, and it was not long before he asked her father for her hand in marriage, which, of course, her father gleefully agreed. Once married, Elfrida's life had been quiet for a while, until gossip began to whisper its way around the castle, and Elfrida learned the true reason for Ethelwald's visit that day. Rather than visiting on his own behalf, Ethelwald had been sent by King Edgar, and worst of all, it had been King Edgar who had wanted to marry her. Ethelwald was just the messenger. Elfrida remembered how horrified she had been when she'd learnt Ethelwald had sent a message back to King Edgar, saying she was not fit for the wife of a king. But, with Edgar's permission, and only because of her wealth, he would marry her instead. What a trickster, she thought, realising he was not the kind man he had led her to believe. It is always best not to tell lies, because they have a way of spilling out into the world, and that is what happened to Ethelwald. It did not take long for his deceit to reach the ears of King Edgar, and so, when the time came to christen Elfrida and Ethelwald's first child, Edgar invited himself to stay to see if the rumours of his friend's deceit were true. The morning of the christening, everything had been prepared and they were ready to welcome the king. Still furious about Ethelwald's deception and wanting to teach him a lesson, Elfrida picked one of her most elegant dresses to wear, even though Ethelwald had asked her to make herself look drab and dowdy. It was a rich green linen, green as the grass on the moor, with fine wide sleeves stitched with tiny embroidered flowers, the colour of the bell heather on the heathland. Her skin was soft then and her neck long and smooth, so she wore her hair up, held with a beautiful comb to make the most of her features. When King Edgar arrived and saw Elfrida, he knew he had been lied to by his friend. Luckily, Edgar had a calm head. He hid his displeasure from the rest of the guests so as not to ruin the day and made sure to spend time with Elfrida instead. Elfrida had been so thankful for this and while she had been happy to see her baby christened, she also felt sad for what could have been. Talking with him had been easy and it had felt good to be with someone who shared her interests. 
The king was young and powerful, and here she was married to a deceitful man, wishing for things to be different. A few months later, a message arrived from the king. He would be staying at his royal hunting lodge in Andover, and they had been invited to join him for a hunting party in Harewood Forest. Elfrida remembered the hunting party like it was yesterday. There had been a real crispness to the morning air, and the forest had felt full of life. She remembered how noisy it had been, with the dogs barking and the men shouting. She had wondered whether they had frightened all the deer away, and secretly she'd hoped they had. Most of the men hunted with long spears. Some were carrying bows and arrows, whilst others, the falconers, rode with a bird of prey on their arm. Elfrida had been excited to see so many noblemen dressed in their hunting clothes, and whilst the women weren't involved in the hunt, they had enjoyed riding out together, discussing the sights and sounds of the day. There was a real sense of anticipation in the air. Then the hunting horns were blown, and they were off and away into Harewood Forest. The men raced ahead until just a flash of their buckles or a glint from their spears could be seen through the trees. Elfrida was much more used to galloping across the wide open spaces of the moorland in Devon, so although she tried to race ahead with them, there were so many overhanging branches she soon learnt to take her time. She had been enjoying exploring the forest and taking great pleasure in the beauty of her surroundings, when suddenly there was a shout, and everything changed. There had been many shouts that morning as the hunters set out, but this sound was different. It pierced through Elfrida like a shard of ice, and she could not tell whether it was a shout of anger or fear. She looked round to see where the noise had come from. The forest, which moments before was so full of life, now seemed a place of secrets and shadows. Suddenly, a grouse flew up out of the undergrowth. Elfrida's horse startled and she found herself galloping into a clearing, only to be confronted with a terrible sight. King Edgar was standing over Ethelwald, who was lying on the ground. Edgar's spear was still in his hand as he looked down at Ethelwald, who was motionless with a wound through his heart. Edgar had killed Ethelwald for his treachery. This was the moment which would haunt her dreams. She knew she had wished for things to be different, but she had not expected this. Dismounting her horse, she ran to her husband but there was nothing that could be done. By the time the others had arrived, she had his blood on her hands. Looks were exchanged, and the seed of their treachery was planted in people's minds. Two years later, she married the king, pouring fuel on the fire of her suspected ambition. Elfrida looked away from the flames and back to the window. What was she supposed to have done, she thought.
She was young and had not wanted to live her life as a widow when her life had only just begun. Besides, she and Edgar had loved each other and during their reign had worked together successfully, creating peace across the land. Elfrida felt she had become the straightforward, strong-minded woman she always knew she could be. And as for her beauty, well, they say beauty is in the eye of the beholder, so she had little control over how others viewed her. She often wondered, however, whether there would have been so much fuss and suspicion surrounding her life if she had been a man. Suddenly there was a shout from the courtyard. Elfrida froze for a moment, fearing the worst, as she always did. She ran to the window and looked down. It was still raining, and the wind was blowing, causing chaos with the fallen leaves. The rain had made the flagstones slippery, and she realised the shout had come from the monk she had seen arrive earlier. He must have been preparing to leave when he had slid over the wet surface and lost his balance, letting go of a pile of parchment papers he was carrying. The monk was trying to grab them, but the wind had other ideas and parchment was now swooping through the air this way and that like a flight of doves. The poor monk was such a comical sight as he skidded and skated, grabbing all that he could, that Elfrida began to laugh. Her eyes twinkled with a youthful mischievousness. She turned away and was about to sit by the fire when there was a knock at the door. No rest for the wicked, she thought. Come in! my version of the Dead Man's Plaque story. And if you have heard this legend before, you'll know that it's not usually told from Elfrida's point of view. I suppose it just goes to show how different the same story can be, depending on who is telling it. Elfrida's life is littered with stories of her devious and cutthroat exploits, but that could be more to do with the fact that she was an ambitious woman living in a time when women rarely held positions of such power. And we also can't know for sure that all the events written in the inscription on the Dead Man's Plaque Monument happened in the way it describes, as it was written such a long time after the events took place. It was erected in 1825, if you're interested. Now, it is true that Harewood Forest was a royal hunting forest in Saxon and Norman times, and Andover first appears in history when the king built his royal hunting lodge there in the year 950 AD. But what about the rest of it? 
I wasn't convinced by her role in the story, and I was so intrigued as to why the character of Elfrida was always painted in such a bad light that I decided to dig a little deeper. And as I did, one of the things I came across was a wonderful book called Elfrida, the First Crowned Queen of England, written by Elizabeth Norton. So I was thrilled when Elizabeth agreed to be interviewed for this episode. Now, unfortunately, we had to do this particular interview via Zoom. So the sound quality isn't great. And on top of it all, my mic wasn't working properly. Luckily, Elizabeth's was. And she was able to tell me some great facts about Elfrida and how the role of women at that time may have skewed our view of her. Hi, thanks for thanks for doing this, Elizabeth. Lovely to meet you. And you too. I love the story, actually. Thanks. Oh, for yeah, it. it's great. Yeah, I loved. I loved it. I mean, I could really very much see some Gamer and Will, William of Malmesbury in it. You know, we were playing chess and things. It was Excellent. great. Yes, because I did. I tried to kind of sneak bits that I read in into it to make it factual and I wanted it to be all the stories I've tried to kind of sneak as much sort of fact in but obviously it's got to be a little bit playful and and you know imaginary as well so um great well thank thank you I think you've actually visited the site haven't you haven't you been there as, I as have well? yeah yeah I did some filming there a few years ago for an Australian company who were doing oh, well wow. on the end of empires so they were they were beginning Edgar's story at Dead Man's Plaque which felt quite appropriate in some respects fantastic had you been there before no no it was my first visit so you sort of I mean I'm sure you've been there but you sort of you yeah. you have to find a slightly hidden away style and then traipse yeah. through the long grass and into the woodland I mean it, it's the most bizarre site because you know you're in woodland and then suddenly there's this enormous monument uh, yeah exactly it's fantastic isn't it and I love the idea that if you're going to go for a walk with the, the the children you've kind of got somewhere to to head for and then as you're walking through the trees this this crazy gothic structure seems to just appear out of nowhere it's yeah it's, it's brilliant and like you say you can't really there's no real um indication of what lies in the woods so it's quite it's quite an exciting find I think it is it is and I'm sure many people come across come across it without actually looking for it or knowing that it's there which is just really exciting I think yeah so the um the inscription on it obviously is all about the murder but as it was um placed there such a long long time after the event actually happens as well from what I've discovered as most of the things with this story we're not quite sure really of well that many of the facts of that true or that convincing and the, and the story to me really seems to be skewed against Elfrida. I, I first came across the story in the Andover um, Museum of the Iron Age and and then again looking at this inscription it all seems to be that she's this murderous woman but the, the two men in it they seem a bit duplicitous as well they don't really seem to be very credible. What, what, what's your take on the whole thing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, there are obviously three main characters in it. There's Ethelwald, Edgar's first husband. I'm sorry, Elfrida's first husband. Then there's Edgar, her second husband. And then there's Elfrida herself. And of the three, she is, in both original versions of the story, very much the least to blame. Um, yeah. You know, um, they kind of, they have varying levels of what her culpability might be, but she's clearly not the person to blame. And yet... 
she is very much remembered for the murder of her first husband. It's one of three murders her name is connected to. And I mean, in all honesty, I think it's because she's a woman and because she's yeah. a powerful woman. Do you think the, the hierarchy was threatened by her at that time or do you think this has happened since then? I think it's a mixture of both. Um, Elfrida was a very powerful woman in her day, um, which is quite unusual because in general, Anglo-Saxon women are quite anonymous. We obviously don't have any reigning queens in this period. Um, you know, women tend to be wives. We often don't know the names of people's wives or their mothers. They're very anonymous. Yeah. Yet Elfrida is this, this person we know such a lot about. And this shows that she was really going against what was expected of women. She's a very political figure. She has a long-running enmity. Um, she has an enemy in Dunstan, the Archbishop of Canterbury, she very much dislikes and he it's mutual. He hates her too. Um, but for a woman to, to be so outspoken against such an important churchman is amazing because we're in a period where actually the Queen isn't necessarily more important than an abbot or a bishop. Um, often when we look at lists of that are charter lists for the Anglo-Saxons, which is where people witness a charter, they all they witness in order of rank. And so you'll get the king at the top, but you don't often get the queen second. Often you'll have the princes, the bishops, the noblemen, and then you get the queen much, much lower down. But Elfrida, she's always right up there. She's quite an intriguing figure. She gets more and more intriguing the more I know about her. So if she was this powerful, if she'd got to this position of power, do you think that was because she would have had to have been an ambassador ambitious woman or a, a very bright, clever woman? I mean, how, how do you think she managed to get herself in this position in, of power? She's undoubtedly very ambitious. Um, Edgar had had probably two wives before Elfrida, possibly one, probably two, um, and both of whom were put away. The marriages were annulled and he then marries Elfrida. So to remain as his wife for such a long period is actually quite impressive because Anglo-Saxon kings quite often discard their wives you know multiple marriages is not at all uncommon in the period but she becomes absolutely essential to his rule. And then what's all this about her being the most beautiful woman in England was that actually a thing as well or has that been something which has been used to explain why she was so um, powerful or able to get into such a high position? So again it's a tricky one we don't have any pictures of Alfreda at all, nothing that can clearly be identified as her survives. I mean, right. no drawings. I mean, we're in a period before you get portraits, but there are no drawings of her, nothing that is a likeness of her. So we kind of have to go a bit on hearsay. Um, quite early on, she seems to have been known as Alfreda the Fair. So mm -hmm. that suggests she was beautiful. But again, that's quite a common nickname for royal or upper class women in the period. Um, King Harold had a mistress called Edith Swanneck, for example. She apparently has such a lovely um, long white neck. So, you know, it's quite common to praise royal women by calling them fair or beautiful. Um, so the hints we know about Elfrida, she seems to have been beautiful. All the sources suggest she was. Um, she may have been quite tall. Her brother was apparently practically a giant um, oh, really? Surviving sources. So, I mean, you, I kind of, in my head, I imagine Elfrida as this sort of statuesque, quite tall, um, very sort of composed figure, very, very striking. And I think that's probably a fair assessment from what we know in the sources. 
And stories seem to abound about her and they seem to become part of folklore and, and mystery. And they start, didn't, didn't stories start to become a little bit um, outrageous? I'm sure there were some stories about it, uh, her, well, using magic, is that right? Yeah, so um, where elf readers concerned, um, medieval people were, were prepared to believe a lot. Um, right. So folklore very much builds up around her, um, largely because she is such a powerful and domineering figure. People either loved her or they hated her, and many, many people hated her. Um, there's one later account that I, I'm always particularly fond of because it's just so crazy, um, and it's it's preserved in the archives at Ely. And right. The abbot of Ely was riding through the forest one day on his way to court when he needed a wee. So he hopped off his horse and went and found a tree because, of course, there are no toilets in the no, forest. Um, against, while he was standing at his tree doing his business, he looked up and he spotted the queen, Elfrida, using magic to turn herself into a horse. She then notices um, the abbot watching her. Um, yeah. But for the moment, the, the incident rests. They both go their separate ways. Unfortunately, they're both going to the court. Um, he arrives at the court and Elfrida immediately summons him to her rooms. And he's really quite worried because obviously he's seen this witchcraft. Um, but he goes because she's a queen. And when he's there, Elfrida has her ladies um, heat up pieces of leather, straps of leather until they're red hot and then uses them to murder him. So <gasps> this is, this is quite a story. Yes, absolutely. So another murder. Um, just to add to her tally, so that makes three. Um, I mean, this Goodness one is me. this one is clearly the maddest and most implausible. There's, you know, I mean, I think we can, I think we can safely say there's nothing in this one, but um, it does show what people are prepared to believe because it's it's written down. But it's a mark of just how black her reputation has become. That she's now not only a murderer, she's also a witch. And so I suppose being a witch would be a great way to discredit someone at that time. And suppose if you're going to try and turn somebody against somebody, you're going to um, try and concoct as many stories as you possibly can. And the, the one which is the, the well-known one, the other one when she's supposed to um, have killed her stepson. Yes. And there's different versions of this. Some people say that it wasn't her, that one of her attendants killed him with a knife but the the one I originally read was that he arrived and she's there she greets him with a um a drink with one hand and then stabs him with a knife and the other uh you know that seems completely implausible really yeah I mean I think this is the one murder that I mean it definitely happened Edward was definitely murdered so of the three that Elfrida is connected to this is the only one that was definitely a murder and right. She certainly has some level of involvement. I think it's difficult to entirely exonerate her from it. But I certainly, um, she's not, you know, she's very much not holding the cup and stabbing him herself. The earliest account merely says he was he was slain at Corf. And the earliest accounts, they blame Elfrida and her son Ethelred for failing to track down and prosecute the murderers to, you know, to get revenge on the murders. And that's what they blame them for they don't blame them for actually committing the murder so do you However, think it was probably a um a supporter of hers who who did it and then she ended up getting the blame yeah I mean it's she clearly had the most she and Ethelred clearly had the most to gain from the murder um no doubt about it. no of course Ethelred's just a child 
Um, but I mean, I think she certainly didn't carry out the murder with her own hand. So no early sources at all place Elfrida actually greeting him at court. Right. It okay. only comes a bit later. Um, but the first account to blame her um, is from the early 11th century, and that says that he was killed by a stepmother's deceit or a stepmother's guile. It's clearly carried out by some of her supporters, and right. it's clearly carried out for Ethelred's benefit. She may well have known what was going to happen. I think the jury is out on that, if I'm yeah. honest. That. that doesn't make her this wicked, wicked queen in a way, does it? Because I think there was, was, I think there's lots of murders and things going on at that time. It doesn't seem. Yeah, there are a lot of Anglo-Saxon princes that die suddenly. The you know the Anglo-Saxon chronicles suddenly say, you know, they were defeated in battle and then they died, and you know you kind of get the sense that there maybe was a bit more murder going on. I think um, finding out that. She was the mother of Ethelred the Unready was 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 quite a, a cool thing for me because obviously I think most of us have heard of Ethelred the Unready because it's such a great name and in school we we, we hear that name bandied about. Um, so to find out she was his mum made me think, oh gosh, she's she, you know she is a, a real real person. Um, but I always thought Unready meant you know, just not very ready to succeed towards the throne. But it actually didn't mean that. It had a different meaning. It's, it's... Yeah, that's right. It's actually a pun. Um, it's a bad translation. Actually, it's Ethelred Unred. And Unred. it's a pun on his name. So um, Ethelred means noble council. Ethel is noble. Red is council. Um, right. Because Anglo-Saxon names almost always have two elements to them and you, they kind of put together um the name, the the words to make a threat, a phrase. So Ethelred means noble council, and Unred means no council. So they're basically calling him noble council, no council. Um, I mean, basically means he's stupid. He's being called Satan is saying that he's stupid because he's just got no, you know, he oh. should be sort of clever and wise. And actually, he's really stupid. He's got no counsel, nothing going it, on in his head. That seems a bit harsh. He was only how old was he at this time when he? Yeah, he's about. Nine-ish when he becomes king, nine or ten. Um, yeah, I mean, he his mother is very much in charge for the first few years of his reign, and um, before right. he attempts to assert himself, and um, he sends her away from court. And actually, I mean, it's a disaster when he sends Elfrida away. Um, it all starts to go a bit wrong, really. The Vikings yeah. arrive. Um, he doesn't reign that well. Um, he eventually calls her back and starts to try and kind of fix things a bit. But I mean, he was. He's not a great ruler. Right. So we should, before we finish, quickly just go back to the story itself, the dead man's plaque story, which obviously we just heard. And, um, well, we've got Harewood Forest. We have a murder. We have these two men who are fighting over this beautiful young woman. Um, how much of this story do, do you think is true, is I don't know, fantasy. Is there any truth in the Deadman's Plaque story? Um, there is and there isn't, I think. Um, the, the accounts of the murder are much, much later, you know, sort of 200, 300 years after the events. She was definitely married to Ethelwald. Um, he is Edgar's foster brother. They were raised together in the household of his parents. Who, his father is Athelstan Half-King, who was so powerful, he was almost a king. Um, wow. So very, very powerful. And she's very, she comes from a very wealthy West Country family. She ma definitely marries Ethelwald, um, definitely has at least one child. Um, so there, you know, the story is kind of 
following the lines of the story to some extent. And at some point, um, Ethelwald dies and she marries Edgar. He divorces his wife to marry her. Um, whether Ethelwald was murdered, um, there's another account um, which is 14th century and, and deals with Elfrida's um, daughter or stepdaughter. We're not totally sure who. It's Ethelwald's daughter. And that right. says that he dies of a long illness. So, you know, he certainly dies young, but I'm not totally convinced that he was murdered. I think Edgar, I mean, Edgar is a man who ch- once chased a nun through the Abbey sewers because he wanted to marry her. So, um, you know, he was quite, he could be quite ruthless. <laughs> so I think the jury's out on the murder, but certainly quite soon after Ethelwald dies, Edgar divorces his wife and marries Elfrida. Right. Well, I think, well, I think the jury's out on all this. And I, for my for me, I'm definitely um, down on the side of Elfrida just being a little bit of an ambitious woman, which is fine. And I think it sounds a bit like the, uh, the hierarchy at the time were just a little bit intimidated by her. And that's where all these stories come from. Um, but it's all been, it's been absolutely fascinating speaking um, to you today. Um, thank you so much, Elizabeth, for joining me. And um, well, you've written lots of books like this, all these wonderful, um, interesting historical books, which are just fantastic. So I think if anybody's interested in reading any more of um, um, Elizabeth's books, well, can you just tell us a little bit about where we can find them? Are they available online or? Yeah, Um, you can get them online, you can get them in bookshops, they're often in Waterstones and other sort of local independent bookshops. Um, My most recent one is called The Lives of Tudor Women. So, I mean, I'm more often write about a later period in Elfrida. I was just so struck by Elfrida's story that I wanted to tell it, really. Um, I've also written a book called England's Queens, which um, has sort of short biographies of all the queens of England, right from the early Saxon period, right up to the current queen, Elizabeth II. Um, But you can find them online and in bookshops. Brilliant. Right. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been really good fun. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Well, that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed the tale and the facts behind it as much as I enjoyed discovering them and writing the story. Thank you for listening. Test Valley Tales is an Arts Council-funded project and part of Tess Valley Arts Foundation Borough of Culture Legacy Projects. You can find all sorts of project resources on my website at www.merry-go-roundstorytelling.co.uk forward slash Test Valley Tales. There is a downloadable map with postcodes to find all the story locations, links to walks and craft activities. You can also buy the Tess Valley Tales illustrated book of short stories there. Tess Valley Tales is on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter as at Test Valley Tales. And this podcast can be found on Podbean at podbean.com forward slash Test Valley Tales. If you are interested in finding out about other types of storytelling I get up to, or you would like to book me for an event, you can email me at mgrstorytelling at gmail.com. I am on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter as at mgrstorytelling and merry-go-round storytelling on YouTube. I also have another storytelling podcast which can be found at podbean.com 
forward slash funny tales and fairy tales. And all this information can be found on my website, which is www.merry-go-round-storytelling.co.uk. Happy storytelling, and I look forward to telling you another tale soon. <laughs>